Welcome to the TESFE podcast with FE editor Stephen Exley. Hello there. Hello with Julia Belgatai. Hello. Hello with Will Martin. Hi. Hello and with me, Sarah Simons. Just as we've started recording, we've got some breaking news. So if I just want to pass you over to Stephen. Yeah, we're all very excited to learn that our good friend Shakira Martin has just been elected the NUS president. So not just for FRE, but all for all of the NUS. So that's fabulous that's news. That. She's a proper passionate advocate for FRE, having been a Lewisham College student. And uh, she's certainly made her presence felt in the role that she's been doing for the last year or so. So uh, we're really chuffed that she's moving up to the big job. That's brilliant. Huge congratulations. Shall we dive straight in? Let's. Right, now I hope you've got a nurse on standby for this first one, as I can feel my blood pressure going already. <laughs> Principal salaries. Yeah, a highlight of everybody's year. Well, maybe not the highlight, but uh, <laughs> we all enjoy having a good chat about it, don't we? We do. Now, before we kick off about this, well, before I kick off about this, we just make it clear that we're not talking about all principles. We're talking about this this group at the top end. Nobody thinks that principals should be earning the same amount as teachers. It's just not about that. It For me, it's about the um, accountability or lack thereof. As always, college accounts come with all sorts of caveats and question marks and there were certainly a few of those again. But what we are seeing is an increasing number of college colleges paying over £200,000 for principal salaries in a single year. Sometimes that will include sort of overlaps where there's been more than one person in post or there's been a change in post. But generally, we seem to be seeing more principals on higher salaries. And in fact, the analysis suggests that now over half of college leaders receive a salary increase last year. And that's obviously as teachers... So a pay freeze in that same year. So How that is that right? Um, How is that right? I'm just looking at what Andrew Harden, Head of Further <laughs> Education at UCU, said here. And he said college leaders who tell staff the money is not there for a fair pay rise for all, while pocketing massive pay rises, are an embarrassment to the sector. I'm guessing you agree with that, Sarah. I do. And what I'll tell you what else I don't get. It feels like it's pick a number. How can somebody be earning a hundred thousand more than than somebody in the same role at the college down the road? If they're a similar size, similar number of students, you know, if all the variables are similar, how can one person be earning so much more? I think that's the problem. There's just a lack of. Um structure around this it's really just down to what is negotiated between an individual college leader and the uh, governing body that they're working with and uh, yeah as you say it's quite surprising if if you could maybe see that it was all the big colleges and big college groups at the top uh, then you, there'd be some sense to it but it seems to be very haphazard in terms of which institutions offer the highest salaries and what's going on with the governors that they're allowing this to happen Surely they must know what other principals are earning in similar areas and at similar size colleges. But it's not just about other principals. Other factors will also come into this. You know, who are you actually competing with? Are you also competing with the private sector, for example? You know, what is the background of the person you're about to recruit? Where would they be going instead? And would they be earning potentially a lot more? Well, I've heard the argument before that they'd be earning a lot more in the private sector. And I'm sorry, but if they could, they would. 
And it's interesting comparison, though, Sarah. Will did some interesting research on what people in other sectors of education earn, and it's quite eye-opening, isn't it, Will? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the, the kind of the common equivalent that most people use is the uh, sort of prime minister's salary in 2015-16, which is when the uh, we well, the data, the ESFA data, which we've analysed, prime ministerial salary, £143,462. In education as well, in the, so for example, in the school sector, um, we've got some obviously um, some very highly paid individuals as well. So, so Daniel Moynihan, who uh, he's head of the Harris Federation of uh, Schools in London, so forty-one schools in Greater London, he earned between um, fourteen twenty thousand and fourteen twenty-five thousand. I don't really want to name drop individuals here but we ran a story i think it was about a month ago at chris jones who's a chief executive of uh, city and guilds group who received almost seven hundred thousand pounds in 2015-16 and so on the top of the pile as well you've got john fallon chief executive of, of pearson who who was paid you know 1.5 million so these are all astronomical figures uh, but i guess it's all relative really and and then obviously that goes even people in the private sector get paid you know a whole lot more so yeah but this isn't the private ar- sector is it this isn't the private sector yeah this all it's all fairly arbitrary um and just yeah the, the salaries these people get are very large and i think the point is that it shouldn't be arbitrary should it if there's a pay scale for everybody else who works in that building except one person but then probably are independent incorporating institutions and, you know, they've got that flexibility and autonomy to set it as they want. So unless you're going to have a massive change in the law to bring colleges back into the public sector, it's just not going to happen. Sorry to disappoint you. I don't think it's just me that's disappointed, Stephen. I think the whole thing is quite astounding. It's true. Anyway, I could go on for the next 12 hours about that. Shall we move on? Let's. Right, apprenticeships. Julia's written a fabulous explanation of everything that's going on in apprenticeships at the moment. Julia, could you give us a, a rundown? So it's essentially a sort of Q&A style approach to everything you need to know on apprenticeships and how they're changing. What are the main changes that are on the way? I would say the main change is how apprenticeships are paid for, with obviously the introduction of the levy. That is sort of the main main issue that's that's been arising over the last few months what is happening is that employers are very much taking charge of the funding side of things so although things can be quite different in terms of you know it depends on the size of the employer and the sort of apprenticeship they're offering and who they're offering it to really employers are now paying for certainly the large employers are now paying for apprenticeships so they are in the driving seat much more than they were before and then the other major change is how apprenticeships are assessed so whereas it used to be essentially continuous assessment there's now something called an endpoint assessment which has been in for a lot of criticism because essentially for lots of um, apprenticeship schemes there aren't really endpoint assessments in place at this stage so that is the other thing to look out for. Going on from that Matt Garvey who's managing director at West Berkshire Training Consortium has written a, a brilliant piece about apprenticeships set in the future Indeed, it's, it's, we can be quite short-termist, I think, in education. So uh, Mark Garvey's skipping ahead to 2037, no less, and uh, offering a bit of a alternative perspective on how, in future years, we'll look back on what's going on at the moment. Which, can I say, I understood far more because I'd read Julia's piece. My pleasure, Sarah, my pleasure. Thank you. So, <laughs> <laughs> Matt's piece set in the future. 
He said it'll sound simply bonkers that the government set the price for an apprenticeship and that the price was determined by something as arbitrary as age. Isn't that a form of discrimination, Grandfather? One of them will ask. Very good talent for writing about quite uh, complex technical things in a very entertaining way, does Mr Garvey. So uh, it's always good to have his perspective in the magazine. Yeah, he's looking at the three big areas of change and explains how it could go, how it could play out either way. He's looked at off-the-job training, standards and price driving up quality. That's right. Yeah, they're all quite contentious areas in their own right. Of course, there's a requirement that 20% of an apprenticeship should consist of off-the-job training, but of course there are plenty of complications around what actually constitutes off-the-job training. It's uh, not such a straightforward question, really, when you're working in employers to, you know, what's learning and what isn't. Rather a thorny issue. And then there's also the switch from uh, frameworks to standards, which is quite slow, I think, isn't it, Julia? Yes, we know that there are still a lot of apprenticeship areas where their standards haven't been completed and haven't been published. So that will take some some time yet to complete that move over from the previous system to this new system. And the third bit, the price. He's talked about how providers will be seeking to compete on value. To me, this whole piece says it can be done the right way or the wrong way. You get out what you put in. Absolutely. Right, moving on, we have a lovely piece from uh, Dr Paul Phillips, who's Principal and Chief Exec of Western College, about the seasons through the year in uh, FE. That's right, I think it's easy for those of us who don't work in colleges day and day out to forget just how seasonal working in FE is in terms of the different cycles you go through, the different things that happen at specific times of year. I was interested in your experience of that, Sarah. Is that something that you really notice? Uh, oh, you know, yeah. How September is like teacher January. There's that first term when you're getting to know them, finding out what's what, and then there's the second term. Exactly what um, Paul says in here, how the second term, the spring term, is more relaxing. You know the, you know the people you teach and you form the relationships. You know what levels people are working to. Hopefully by that point you've worked out what the strengths are, what the challenges are and the, the kind of the dynamic within the class. And that, so by that second term, it's, you know, you're getting on with it and you can be a bit more experimental and do slightly more exciting stuff. Right. But then when it comes to the third term, which we've just started now, it all gets real. It's who's passed their exams, who, certainly from a functional skills point of view, who needs to get through what bit. It all becomes real at this point in the year. And almost every year, for almost every teacher I know, they'll have a student who's come about three times in the previous two terms turn up at the beginning of May and go, oh, I need, I need my level two. Um, I've missed a couple of classes. When's the <laughs> exam? Um, it was interesting reading this with Paul, how, how the year's different for him as a principal and very much looking at whether objectives have been delivered at various points, you know, as far as strategy, various points in the year. That's right. It's interesting thinking about how he describes the difference between the spring and summer term as well, how spring is really the time for when you can sit back a bit, as you were saying earlier, Sarah, a bit of period of creativity, a bit of forward planning, a little bit of thinking about uh, different things that can be explored in the future. And then as you get into summer, 
you've got to uh, tick the boxes. You've got to think about the need to deliver a surplus, looking at the reserves, looking at the uh, you know, funding issues going forward and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating route. Ferret. What's Ferret been up to? Ferret's a bit sad this week, actually, Sarah. It's all about love. Yeah, it's all about love. He's, he's a bit despondent about the election. Yeah. I'm sure many are despondent about the election, to be fair. But Ferret is particularly upset about the prospect of losing our minister and shadow minister. Yes. And they've been ever so respectful of each other as well, which is lovely, isn't it? That's right. You get so much uh, nastiness and rivalry in uh, Parliament. But uh, Robert Halfen and Gordon Marsden, have, uh, you can tell that they're very fond of each other whenever they appear in Parliament together or you see them in person together. There's a genuine warmth there and uh, it's really nice to see that. And also they both clearly care about what they're uh, covering as well. Yes. And so we're hoping that they both continue after the election. Indeed, obviously we're completely politically neutral, so we don't mind who's doing what, but as long as we get to keep them both, that's fine. Well, it's not you anyway, it's Ferret. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right, and finishing off with a column from Mr Tom Starkey. Yeah, I thought you might like this one, Sarah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, he's he's always brilliant, isn't he? But he's on about um, bumping into students outside of college and after he's taught them. Yeah, and I think if anyone is looking for anything uplifting to sort of lift their spirits before the weekend, this will be one to read um, as soon as you get your copy of the magazine. Um, Because unlike in schools where it sometimes takes years for people to find out how students have done and how they've continued on after they leave school, Mm. in colleges that impact is much more immediate. You know, you might meet them a few weeks after they leave college in the new job they've just started or, you know, just somewhere out and about. Um, And he talks... Uh, in a very lovely and warm way about uh, some of the people that he has encountered, particularly someone called Daryl, who I'm sure will be thrilled to just mention <laughs> in the magazine. Um, but he's saying how lovely it is that he gets to see where people have, have gone, and it's really rewarding. Yeah, it just goes to show how closely embedded colleges are in their communities, really. You uh, can never get too far without bumping into someone who you've taught or worked with. Yeah, I haven't worked in in where I live for quite a while, but when I was, I bumped into a student. I'd gone into town and I went into just went into Boots to get some bits and pieces, and it was his Saturday job, and he was working there, and he was a current student, and it was as if I'd gone into his front room. He said, "What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Get out!" I was like, "It's Boots. I'm allowed in." It's not as heartwarming a story as Tom's, but still, nice enough. I've made a mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe best go to Superdrug next time. Yeah, will do. I think that's us, isn't it? Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you, and the TES is on sale every Friday, and you'd be daft to miss it. And we'll be back soon with the TESFE podcast. Thanks for listening.